Uh, well, good morning again. Welcome to Jville Prez. Uh, it's been a hard week for many of us at our church, and uh, you know, praying that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven carries a different meaning this week for many of us in the passing of Helen Hine and Guy Woman. Um, I've got to be honest, uh, I feel a little bit like a pumpkin that has been scooped out of everything on the inside. Uh, so I hope that I'm an empty vessel and you hear Christ speaking through me this morning. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at the a famous passage from uh, Paul where he talks about the Lord's Supper. We're going to start in verse 17, uh, go through 34. Uh, Paul is a little bit more feisty in this section than I'm going to be. <laughs> Uh, but he has a lot of great things to say to us as God's beloved people. So with that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us through the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Do, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated as we pray together as God's people? Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, the great blessing of corporate worship. Uh, Lord, that we can comfort one another. Lord, that we can rejoice with one another. And Lord, we praise you that uh, death is not the end for any one of us, and that you are the God of the living, not of the dead, and Helen and Guy are more alive than ever. Uh, Father, thank you that, is, that that is the destiny for everyone who calls upon your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, this morning we're uh, finishing our eight-week series on everyday disciples. So if you would, look at the bulletin that, that you got in this morning. If you look at the bulletin on the front, it's also up on the screen, which is helpful. Uh, we have all these little diagrams and listings of these steps uh, on the way of the life of a follower of Jesus. Uh, these are not things that save us. They are rhythms of life uh, that help us follow Jesus and tap into his grace and his love and live uh, really in step with the Spirit. 
Uh, so we talked about things like praying regularly. And uh, thank you for everybody who has been fasting. Uh, I have heard some alarming concerns about people not taking medical advice, you know. So uh, if you are fasting and it's uh, affecting your health, uh, remember, you can fast by just reducing the kinds of foods you can eat, right? But always take that medical advice seriously. Uh, but I know many of you have been fasting, and I want to thank you for that. I know that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but really, this morning, we're finishing up with uh, the, sort of the last step in discipleship that I would argue is uh, uh, incredibly important in the life of any follower of Jesus, and that is worship. And, uh, you know, theologians throughout time have sort of categorized worship in three different ways because in some sense, everything can be worship, right? You can worship God uh, outside. You know, uh, tomorrow afternoon, I'm leaving with Bobby Ball, uh, who did a funeral this past week, and we're going to go spend some time on the Rogue River, and we're going to be worshiping the Lord as, Lord willing, we catch fish. Uh, but that's not exactly the kind of worship I'm talking about. Uh, you know, you can think of uh, worship in maybe three categories. There is private worship which is you and the Lord, just by yourself. Think of your morning devotional, or uh, me when I'm all alone in the river tomorrow, just thanking God for creation and for the hope of heaven. That would be private worship. Secondly, there's something called family worship. Uh, you know, think about uh, the old believers in the, in the Old Testament when they would take the Passover meal together as a family. Well, that would be family worship, and hopefully if you still have kids or relatives in the home, you have some kind of family worship, maybe in the morning or in the evening, uh, and then, th so there's private worship, you and the Lord, maybe family worship with you and your spouse or your kids or your, you know, grandparents, whoever's living with you. Uh, the third category is really what we're going to focus on this morning, which is corporate worship. And corporate sounds kind of funny because it sounds like business worship, but that's not what we mean by the word corporate. Corporate refers to corp, as in the body. So it is what we do when we gather together as the body of Christ. So everybody listening to me right now is engaged in corporate worship. It is uh, what some people would call just going to church. But I don't like the idea of going to church because, um, you know, the church is the people, right? So whenever people ask me where my church is, I say, well, it depends on what time of day it is and what day of the week it is because usually my church is somewhere in Medford, somewhere in Jacksonville, somewhere in White City, somewhere in Central Point, you know, the church is wherever the people are. So, uh, I, you know, you hear me sometimes, I don't talk a lot about going to church, but you'll hear me say corporate worship, uh, which refers to what we do when we gather together. And, uh, you know, let's be honest, corporate worship uh, has had uh, a rough go at it lately, and not just because of the last two years, but because uh, more and more people are, are devaluing corporate worship for things like maybe private worship or family worship. But I don't, I don't see those things in competition at all. They're not in competition at all. Uh, but there is a value for the Christian to gather together with God's people at corporate worship. And I think it's incumbent upon all believers to gather together with people outside of their nuclear family for worship. And I think we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 11. So as we dive into this topic then of worship, I'm focusing specifically this morning on corporate worship. And so with that in mind, I'm going to give you a couple of uh, quotes, and I want, I want you to just, as you hear these things, I'm not necessarily endorsing them uh, fully, but I'm more using them to spark uh, a thought in your mind. And that is simply, is this person overstating it? So just ask yourself, when I, when I read this, it's going to be on the screen, just ask yourself, is this guy overstating it? Uh, this comes from David Mathis, who wrote a great book called Habits of Grace. David Mathis is real close with Pastor John Piper. Mathis writes, while I cannot commend one keystone habit that will make the difference for every believer, I do want to speak up on behalf of one weekly habit that is utterly essential to any healthy 
life-giving, joy-producing Christian walk, corporate worship. And it is all too often neglected or taken very lightly in our day of disembodiment and in our proclivity for being non-committal. In fact, I do not think it is too strong to call corporate worship the single most important habit of the Christian life. Is Mathis overstating it? Let's go to another quote. Uh, This guy uh, wrote about 100 years ago, and he said this, Yes, I know all the excuses. I know that one can worship the Creator and dedicate oneself to good living in a grove of trees or by a running brook or in one's own home, uh, just as in church. But I also know, as a matter of cold fact, the average man does not thus worship or thus dedicate himself. You may worship God anywhere at any time, but the chances are that you will not do so unless you have first learned to worship him somewhere in some particular place at some particular time. Uh, That was the great theologian, President Teddy Roosevelt, uh, writing in the Ladies' Women's Journal. Uh, Fun fact, Teddy Roosevelt was a uh, faithful Presbyterian. (laughs) Not that made him any better, but is Teddy Roosevelt overstating that? That you won't be able to really worship God in creation until you learn how to worship him somewhere at some particular place at some particular time. Or think about uh, Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews writes this, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you see the day drawing closer and closer of Christ's return, the author of Hebrews says that's more and more reason to stay in with the body of Christ. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about corporate worship, what, what specifically does corporate worship do when we gather as God's people? What is unique about this that is different than family or, or private worship? Well, I want to just make this quick argument or suggestion, however you want to hear it, and that what happens uniquely when we gather as the body of Christ, uh, certain things happen uniquely, and that is the authoritative preaching of the word, right? So there's the preaching of the word uh, that doesn't happen to you when you're reading the Bible by yourself. There's no one holding your feet to the fire, right? And uh, we all have uh, confirmation bias, right? So when we gather together, there's the preaching of the word. Uh, There's also corporate prayer, When we gather together, we pray on behalf of each other together. And uh, if you're paying careful attention, you'll notice that the prayers throughout our service follow the ACTS prayer guideline, right? Anyone ever prayed through the ACTS prayer? It's A-C-T-S. We spend time adoring God. We spend time confessing our sin. We spend time thanking God. And then we spend time asking for God to supply what we need, supplication, A-C-T-S. So those are woven throughout our services. We worship through singing. uh, But really, uh, if I could narrow down on one specific thing that happens in corporate worship uh, that's unique is the sacraments, or what other Christians would call ordinances, which is communion and baptism. And I would suggest to your consideration as you read through 1 Corinthians 11 that communion is meant to be taken as the corporate body of Christ. And as we enter into a study this morning then on on worship, we're going to be looking at what Paul teaches us about communion and why it's important for the corporate body of Christ. And, uh, you know, if I could sort of have like two ends on the spectrum then for uh, this morning as you're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, look at it in your lap, will you? 
Um, if you've got your Bible and you're comfortable writing it in your Bible, or if you've got notes, I would just write the two words, beauty and reverence. As we were looking at 1 Corinthians 11, those are going to be sort of like the two, um, you know, uh, ends to the tennis court that the, the ball in Paul's mind is going to go back and forth through, right? Uh, there's going to be utter beauty, but then there's also this sense of utter reverence that sometimes we don't always think about. Uh, but sometimes it's beautiful, sometimes it's reverent. Uh, so with that, let's look at what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Well, uh, if you look at verse 17, Paul's talking about corporate worship. And uh, he goes on and he shifts gears in verse 17 and he focuses on communion or what he calls the Lord's Supper. Uh, in Greek, it's Eucharist, uh, which means the, the, the thanksgiving, the good thanksgiving. Uh, so you call it by any of those things, but you know, typically we call it the Lord's Supper or communion, but it all refers to the same thing. He says, though, to the Corinthians that he's a little upset with how they're taking communion. You see that in verse 17, he says, I'm not going to commend you in how you do communion because when the church comes together corporately, something's wrong. You know, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. So what is it that the Corinthians are doing? And uh, I'm not necessarily, I don't think our church is guilty of this just for the record. So, you know, you can just relax. This is just a historical study, okay? So what was the Corinthian church doing that was causing Paul to be concerned? Well, look at verse 18. He says, well, in the first place, when you come together, uh, there's all kind of divisions within the church. And that reminds us to uh, the very beginning of Paul's letter in the Corinthians. He says, some people said, well, I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And he says, you all follow Christ. So it's a deeply divided congregation. And then he says, and in particular, when you come together, verse 20 uh, their division seeps into the way that they take communion. Uh, before we get into verse 20, though, it is interesting. I want you to notice in verse 19 that Paul does say that church unity has its limits, right? That there is a sense that, you know, sometimes the factions in the church are meant to expose those who are truly genuine, right? So unity is great, but we can't make unity uh, an idol. Uh, we can't make it the ultimate goal because Paul says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions within you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, for I think what Paul's getting at is, I mean, nobody is a more strong, full-throated advocate about church unity than Paul. But what Paul is saying is that not everybody who comes to church is a Christian. Not everybody who is listening to corporate worship is truly converted. And so communion is an opportunity for this to be brought up. Just because you come to worship does not mean you should be taking communion. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say that if you don't understand communion and you haven't professed faith in Christ, you can be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. So this is where uh, Paul can be very challenging to us. Do you see the beauty of communion, but also the reverence, the seriousness to communion? Uh, so what is it that's causing the problem? Look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. A fascinating phrase, isn't it? There's something wrong. He says in verse 21, because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. <laughs> and he says, what? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, what uh, you know, most uh, scholars uh, believe is that the way the church would originally take communion, would, there would be a meal. There's a meal time during the worship service, and possibly during this sort of gathering of food where people would actually eat, at some point, you know, the person in charge would say, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing. 
Let's all get a piece of bread. Let's all take the cup and let's all take it together at this time within the context of a broader meal. And so this is where Paul's saying, though, if, if there's the church potluck, some people are like popping the really good wine, getting drunk after church, eating all the really good food. And then there's poor people, probably slaves or people down the socioeconomic ladder. And when it comes time for them during the meal to actually eat some bread and drink the cup, they've got nothing. And so instead of communion being a corporate gathering where men and women, young and old, discouraged and encouraged Christians of all kind of different stripes, this corporate gathering where we all testify to our faith in Christ. Instead of that happening, what's happening is is we're rubbing salt on the wound in Corinth. We're showing that there is a socioeconomic difference. So this is where Paul says, look, stop getting drunk at communion. I mean, you know, every now and then when I think our church has problems, right, you know, like I'm like, oh, the church in America, it's so messed up. Sometimes I read Corinthians and I'm like, well, okay. Well, I don't think he was getting drunk at communion. I mean, we have juice, you know, so we're not doing that wrong. Um, but it's an encouragement to me that as messy as church is today, it's always been messy. It's always been a struggle for us to follow Christ together. Uh, but if I could sort of have you focus in on this, uh, what I want you to see is Paul doesn't say, well, take communion at home by yourself. You know, if you want to take communion, you've got the really good rich food, go do it by yourself. Instead, what he says is, hey, make sure everybody can have the cup, make sure everybody can have the bread, and go home and eat your meal. But when it comes to communion, this is about testifying that we are united in Christ across any divide that the world would probably want to put on us. Verse 23, he goes on and he gives those famous words that Pastor Richard and I, you know, try to quote as best we can anytime we take communion. And this is where he starts to preach the gospel to us. And that's really what communion is all about. It is a reminder that Christ gave his body so that we could be totally forgiven. Uh, Christ was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brings you and me peace with God. So this is what we remember, is that we are not saved by our good works or by our godly habits. We are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that through faith in him, we are spiritually united to him forever so that your spirit and the spirit of God are like this for eternity. And so that when you and I die, death is a door we will burst right through. Because if the same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead now lives in you, will you not also live forever with him? See, this is what we remember at communion. Uh, It's an opportunity to think about eternity. Remember, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Paul's preaching the gospel. Verse 23, he goes on and uh, he reminds us that when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he took the cup, uh, what he was actually doing, for those of you who know the Bible, he's actually taking the Old Testament practice of the Passover meal and he is fulfilling the ultimate meaning of Passover, right? Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb whose blood saves us from the wrath of a righteous God and saves us from the condemnation of our sin, right? Just like the Passover lamb's blood was over the door, Christ's blood washes us free so that we never have to fear anything ever again. You know, when I think about Passover, it's, um, uh, 
it's inescapable that I'll think back to a few years ago when uh, Guy Wallman had my family and I over to celebrate a Seder meal. Has anyone ever celebrated a traditional Seder meal where you go through the Passover meal, but each of it points to Christ? It's very profound, and it's such a beautiful reminder uh, that the Old Testament is always tied to the work and the ministry of Christ. Uh, he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and the Passover meal. And so uh, Paul goes on and he says, uh, you know, we need to take this uh, seriously, right? It's a reminder of the gospel. And this is why, you know, you'll hear Pastor Richard and I often uh, say that this is a meal for Christians. Because the first step of coming to Christ is professing faith in Jesus and believing in him. And just as the apostle Peter said, repent and believe in Jesus and be baptized. That's the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance, faith in Jesus, baptism. And then we partake of communion. And it's a serious thing. I mean, look where Paul goes next. Verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Uh, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then Paul, again, hammering the reverence, says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, that is if we really looked at our own hearts and saw the sin and repented of it, then we wouldn't be judged because we would be confessing our sin and looking to Christ for our salvation. And then we would see that uh, we are disciplined in this world, not because God is displeased with us, but because he's preparing for us for life with him forever. Uh, it's a beautiful reminder of, of the reverence. And uh, this is often why at our uh, church, Richard and I will say this is a table uh, for people who have been baptized and uh, some people may not be familiar with that practice, but this is, the, this is the long-time Christian practice that the first step of the Christian life is repentance and faith and then baptism. And really, baptism is your public declaration that you follow Jesus. So we really shouldn't be coming to the table declaring anything unless we've first taken the proper step of being baptized. And, uh, you know, this may be a little bit different for some of us, but I would also uh, consider, I'd have you to consider this if you're a parent in the room, that this is why it's important to talk to your kids about baptism before you give them communion. Uh, baptism is the first step. And say, well, do you really believe Jesus is the Lord, that he died for your sins? And if that kid believes that, then, you know, maybe it's time to start talking to them about baptism. And, of course, you know, in front of your seats, there's uh, information about a baptism class uh, just coming up where your kids could maybe be baptized uh, this Easter. Um, you know, remember the, the sacraments are the things that happen at, at corporate worship. And I'm very excited to announce, if you haven't heard, if I can go on an excursus for just a second, uh, that uh, in the next several weeks, uh, you'll notice that things are kind of moving around the stage. Um, I hate pulling the pulpit every Sunday, y'all. And so uh, I'm just going to camp out here, I think. And uh, we're going to have the communion table up front. When we don't have communion, we're going to put a Bible up front. It's a great uh, imagery to have God's word and the sacrament in the center. 
Uh, but uh, in the next, yeah, I don't know, several weeks, I'm not sure what the timeline is, we're actually going to be moving the choir loft to basically about right here. And the elders have ordered a new baptismal. And it's going to match everything in the sanctuary, but we're going to be able to baptize by immersion anyone who wants to be baptized. Because really, it's great for baptism be, to be done at corporate worship, where someone can profess faith in Jesus and be baptized. And then for all like three of us who believe in infant baptism here, we're also... <laughs> going to have a little bowl in the baptismal uh, where we can scoop out water for baptizing infants. So, you know, uh, we'll be uh, celebrating, Lord willing, if our child comes uh, to the land of the living on Pentecost, we'll be baptizing a little uh, baby, uh, baby Jernigan number five. Uh, but I think that'll be a really beautiful image to, to remind ourselves as a church that we are united in the essentials but we're also united in non-essentials. Some people believe infant baptism, some people believe in believer's baptism, uh, but we all believe baptism is what Christ has called us to do in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're going to have one thing that accommodates us uh, really to, I think, in a really beautiful way. I don't know, you may not think that's beautiful. I think it's really beautiful uh, that there's that, that unity and diversity at our church. Uh, so uh, as the community, uh, as the baptismal thing is going to be over here, uh, you know, we are going to be Encouraging families, uh, if you have little kids, to come for communion, uh, there's a seriousness to it. And it's not that I, I want to pick on kids at all. I, I think it's because uh, I take seriously what Paul says in 1 Corinthians verses 27 and 28. Look at verse 28, for instance. Paul says, let a person examine himself, then and so eat and drink. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drink judgment on himself. Now, other Christians may take a different interpretation of that, but here at our church, what we, what we see that specifying is for you to take communion, you need to be able to examine yourself, to understand your sin, to want to repent, and then to use this as an opportunity to profess faith. And so if your kid's at that point, praise God, let's talk to him about baptism, and then we can talk about communion. Uh, so, uh, you know, how are we going to be taking communion? If I can sort of shift gears um, you know, if we can look at how we're going to be taking communion, we are going to take it a little uh, differently this morning. We still have, you know, the packets, you know, um, post-COVID life, we'll probably always have these little packets. Uh, but when we take communion this morning, uh, if you were at our Ash Wednesday service, you'll get an idea of how we're going to be taking it moving forward. Uh, and, you know, Pastor Richard and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and we love the imagery of Jesus inviting his people to come to his table, to come to his table. And so uh, with that imagery in mind of coming to the table of the Lord, we're going to have four stations, and they're all going to be up front from now on. You know, in the past, we did two in the back, two in the front, uh, but there's going to be four stations, one far away over there, one kind of by the table, one right here, and one a little further over there. And if you look around the room, there are four sections of chairs. And uh, we've pulled the side groups. You see that? We've pulled y'all off of the wall. <laughs> and what we're going to invite each section to do is you're going to go down on your right hand, go to the station that's closest to you, and then make a loop and go back the other way. Was that clear? Okay, so, um, you know, there's a great, great, uh, any managers in the room or parents or teachers or spouses struggling to communicate, I won't charge you for this, but as an exercise, if you just said, hey, if you're talking to somebody, I said, hey, honey, fold a piece of paper in half, then fold it corner to corner, and then fold it in half again. Do you think you would fold it the same way that anyone else would fold in the room? 
But what are you talking about? I just made that so clear. All I said was fold it in half, fold it corner in a corner, and then fold it in half again. But we'd be like making origami, you know, if you ever do that with people, you know, and this is great marriage advice. You know, honey, I said, it. how more clear could I get it? Well, it wasn't actually that clear. So let me just sort of circle back around on this, okay? So what you're going to do is, like, if you are in this section right here, I'm going to be your station. So whenever you're ready to take communion, you'll come out on your right hand, come to me, and then you will loop back around on the other side. Does that make sense? So this is my section. I think this is going to be Kevin Font's section. Uh, there's uh, Richard is going to be our floater still, so if you can't take communion, just raise your hand and... Uh, uh, so hopefully this will be uh, helpful to our church in the sense that we're coming forward. Uh, you may notice that we have different uh, things. I don't even know what to call them. Elements. Uh, we have a more simple chalice and a more simple cup. Um, I've got some unleavened bread. I love that the deacons made me that big loaf, but every Sunday I take this big loaf of leavened bread. I'm like, this isn't what he used. <laughs> so I have more of a leavened piece of bread that'll match what's in your packet and uh, we liked the idea, if you look at the table, of more simple elements, a more just a simple piece of pottery. And then uh, we liked the woven baskets because um, it me, there's no deep spiritual meaning. I think they look cool, but it also reminds me when Jesus fed the 5,000 miraculously that there were 12 basketfuls left over. So that was sort of what inspired the baskets. And so that's how we're going to be uh, moving forward as a church, the four stations um, and then, you know, if you haven't ever taken communion here, uh, you know, you don't have to be a member here. You know, you don't have to even believe in, you know, the Presbyterian church. You have to believe in Jesus and be baptized in his name. Uh, but if you, uh, if you know uh, that you'll take the packet and then get it ready, and then we'll take it together. So I'll say, now let's eat the bread together as a whole group. Now let's take the cup. Um, so anyway, um, I'm excited about uh, moving forward with communion. Um, I think if you're a parent and you're struggling with what I said, I would love to talk to you afterwards about it. You may have never thought about it. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity, though, to talk to your kids about what Jesus has come to do in this life. And uh, friends, there is such beauty. Um, I want to finish with just with, with this. Um, you know, in a, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about something called the Apostles' Creed, which is just a summary of what Christians have believed uh, throughout time. And uh, one of the beautiful things that we confess is we believe in something called the communion of the saints. And communion there doesn't really necessarily mean that communion, uh, although that's certainly a part of it. But the communion of the saints means that what unites believers is not that we're all part of the same denomination or non-denomination. It's not even that we're all a member of this specific church. It means that there is something that supersedes any of that. And there is one unified church of Jesus Christ for all those who believe in him. And we are spiritually unified to all of those people alive on earth today. But there's also a beautiful aspect to the communion of the saints. Um, and it's, a, and it's a, a bit profound to consider, but you and I, we're not just united in Christ to those who are alive today. We are also united spiritually to all believers who have ever gone before us. And when we sing um, the doxology, praise ye above ye heavenly host, we have to remember that when we praise God in corporate worship, we are also echoing the worship of the angels and the seraphim and the cherubim and all of the saints who are alive with Jesus today. All those who believe in Jesus, all those believers are alive. 
Uh, so friends, as we remember those who have passed away, they are more alive now than they ever have been. And somehow, miraculously, we are still united to them. <laughs> I'm not telling you to pray to them. Don't pray to them. The Bible never says that. But remember that we are united and that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. Uh, so with that in mind, friends, let's pray as we get ready to take communion in a few minutes. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are the God of the living. Uh, Father, we pray that we would worship you in holiness and in humility. Lord, that we would have um, a view to the reverence of communion. Uh, Lord, you know our hearts are grieving, but Lord, we praise you that you have overcome death. Uh, Father, would you be preparing for us even now an eternal weight of glory. And Lord, help us to set our minds on the things that are unseen and not the things that are seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Uh, praise God for your grace and for the blood of Jesus who wipes us clean of every sin and for hope in this life and the next. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.